This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 5th, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. Congress passed the bank bailout more than a year ago, and since then we've learned that most of it was an abdication of responsibility. Instead of suspiciously eyeing all aspects of the legislation and demanding congressional oversight for how TARP funds were spent, Congress handed a huge amount of power and money with precious little oversight over to the White House. John Samples, director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government, is author of the forthcoming paper, TARP, a case study in congressional failure. What I've done is looked at not TARP so much, but how Congress uh, worked uh, with TARP and brought it about. And I've looked at it from a constitutional point of view. That is, Congress is supposed to be a strong part of the government. It's supposed to balance the executive, and so on. What I found was that none of this happened. The Congress performed miserably with TARP, and not just on the basis that it was a bad policy, but it didn't do any of the things it was supposed to do to make good policy under the Constitution. Now, essentially, one of the... I mean, there's a couple of strange things here. I found, for example, that this wasn't exactly a case of executive branch officials being ambitious and wanting to take power. Ben Bernanke said at a a crucial point last summer, you know, I think I'm at the extent of my legal power here. I think we have to go to Congress and get some authorization for this. So in a sense, Bernanke was sort of acting like uh, a person acting within a constitutional framework, that he had some sense of the constraints of his own power. Uh, So they went to um, Congress. They went there with a two-page bill uh, essentially, they wanted money to give to stabilize the banks and to buy troubled assets. And uh, it had a bill had problems with it, but, but I concluded in the end that it was probably uh, a lot better than what actually happened after Congress got a, a, a good grip on it and started the wonders of the legislative process because it was a better bill, the Paulson bill early on. Um, now, I have to say, no bill, I think, probably would have been better. But if you're going to do something, of the two choices we have before us, the Paulson bill or what Congress actually did, the Paulson bill was better because it had a a small number of goals. It could have permitted uh, congressional oversight. It didn't require a bunch of pork barrel spending to get it through the legislative process uh, and so on. So the executive doesn't come across as being sort of power mad and uh, causing problems. Uh, the problems really are with Congress. Congress uh, uh, confronts the issue of TARP and then essentially just delegates all of the authority it has in this to the, to the executive, does it in a way that there's no possible way of, of uh, real oversight. Uh, really, you had a breakdown of the rule of law. You had Congress not working at all to limit or check the executive. It was essentially a blank check. And the way the law was poorly written, uh, there was no way Congress could hold the executive. Uh, They just simply said, as they so often do, here's $700 billion, deal with this, right? And that's just way outside the bounds of what the American Constitution foresees for the Article I, the most important branch of government, Uh, the United States Congress. This all came about during a moment of crisis, and that poses particular difficulties for the legislative process when it it has to grapple with something where someone insists that time is a factor. Yeah, my my, uh, 
colleague here at Cato, Mark Calabria, who served several years in Congress as a, a committee staffer, when I talked to him about this, said, you know, there's circumstances come up where there's a sort of hot potato element to uh, the policy. And, and crises, I think, are, are sort of typical that way. Uh, that it, and I have to add, Congress in particular is willing and, and really anxious to get rid of accountability or the possibility of negative uh, uh, blowback during an election when any kind of tough choices have to be made. Now, you would say under the Constitution, again, they're supposed to be the representative, most representative branch, and that's what the group you want making the tough choices because of that accountability. Uh, but what it is clear to me from um, TARP is that there was no willingness at any time down to this moment for Congress to take the least bit of accountability for making the policy. Uh, all the, If you look at the actual bill itself, it's filled with uh, any number of goals and con so-called considerations and, in other words, things the policy is supposed to accomplish. And it, all those things are thrown in there in a slapdash fashion. It's just so, when things go wrong, members of Congress can get up in front of their constituents and say, we told them to do this goal. We told them not to waste taxpayer money. We told them to stabilize the economy. We told them to protect people against foreclosure. They're not doing it. It's their fault. In other words, the one thing Congress did consistently, and you could argue, well, except it's a bad thing, is push away responsibility and always have something where they can always blame the executive primarily or somebody else when things go wrong. And so essentially you have a unaccountable uh, Congress that is perfectly willing to give away its power, uh, contrary to the Constitution, uh, to avoid accountability. And you have to say, I mean, everything else is a part uh, that the executive was willing to take accountability, willing to take on the policy and to carry it out. Part of the reason there, though, is the problem with the executive doing this, which is the Treasury Secretary or the, certainly the, the head of the, the Federal Reserve are not directly responsible to voters. They're down the line some. And certainly for someone like... Uh, uh, Paul, Secretary of the Treasury Paulson in the Bush administration, he was in an administration that was, um, you know, a lame duck, and, and there was not going to be any, couldn't be any accountability for that administration, uh, except I'm sure that for Paulson, reputation mattered and so on. But one of the prices you pay, I think, in this kind of unconstitutional delegation is that... Um, you lose accountability to the voters, and that's why the framers of the American Constitution wrote the legislative vesting clause the way they did, so that that loss of accountability would not take place. One of the key things that Congress actually took seriously uh, in crafting the TARP legislation was arriving at some potential limits for executive compensation for firms that had received TARP funds. Mm -hmm. Why did they do that? Well, they wanted to redirect the anger about the bailout and to say, we, you know, that's all the Treasury's doing that. We, Congress, are making sure that the banks pay a price through executive compensation. 
Treasury refused to carry out uh, their desire for compensation limits until uh, Congress passed an amendment to the so-called stimulus that had this man appointed to be the czar of compensation. He still hasn't enforced any limits. I have to say, though, there's one accidental, what I would think of as a good thing came out of all this, which is the possibility of executive compensation uh, limits drove the banks that were receiving the money to work as hard as they could, to focus as much as they could on paying back the TARP money so they could get out from under the government's thumb. And the great danger uh, a year ago was that the banks would be permanently controlled by Congress and would become sort of permanent piggy banks for pork barrel spending. The executive comp uh, part of this had the unintended consequence, I think, of getting the banks out quicker than they would have otherwise. I guess in the final analysis, that was a good thing. But the reason the banks wanted to pay back the funds so quickly or found themselves in a position at some point where they wanted very quickly to pay the money back was because they learned that the deal that they had struck in accepting the money was changing. Right. And after the fact. There, yes, the they were, uh, and again, you can look at this as good or bad. They were they they were very uncertain about what the actual terms of the deal were, uh, so the result was they were uncertain about continuing or about taking more money. That may make banks, if there is any institutional memory at all, less willing in the future. Uh, to go down this road, that uh, interactions with government are what libertarians have always said they are. You know, for businesses that are that want these kinds of relationships, uh, you shouldn't think that you're dealing with someone that's uh, the terms are going to be solid and lasting, and it's a contractual relationship. The, uh, you're going to be subject to whatever is politically useful for the people that are controlling you. The best example of that when banks, when the heads of various banks got together with Henry Paulson to initially strike this deal, the only thing that made that legal, that meeting legal, was the fact that the Secretary of the Treasury was there. Had that meeting taken place without the Secretary of Treasury, it would have been a, a, an illegal collusion. It would have been, well, as we know, I mean, so much of what... Uh, is passed as progressive legislation or progressive policy making is in fact uh, you know just another way of creating monopolies that otherwise would be highly undesirable if not illegal. This is a good point made by Richard Epstein in in some of his Cato writings, and this is an example of a monopoly on the run, I think. And uh, that was an coercion, of course, of uh, the banks involved. How do we prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future? It seems, generally speaking, that the course of government is to take whatever precedent was set in the last egregious action and build upon it. Yeah, and on the negative side, I mean, I think I would say from my research that I was really shocked at how what a poor quality Congress we have and how downhill it's fallen and how far short it is of what the framers wanted it to be on, on the bad side. On the potentially good side, uh, it all ties up with the courts, I think, and the ability of the courts and willingness of the courts to try to make Congress fulfill its constitutional duties of actually uh, having a rule of law and making legislation. 
not delegating the legislation to the executive branch. Um, I believe the courts have to be force Congress to decide what kind of goals and what trade-off among goals in a policy like this uh, it wants, that the legislation otherwise should be unconstitutional. Once you do that, there's still some flexibility for the executive branch, but at least um, Congress and the courts and, and the executive would have uh, guidance from the Congress who and Congress would make the most important decisions about the policy instead of essentially just writing non-law law and then letting the executive do whatever it wants to. John Samples is director of the Cato Institute Center for Representative Government. He is author of the forthcoming paper, TARP, A Case Study in Congressional Failure. Read more on TARP and where the money went at Cato.org.